This podcast is brought to you by Vital Smarts. Have you found yourself in a conversation where emotions have taken control? You can easily get lost in the moment. You might say something you don't really truly mean or your meaning is misinterpreted. Crucial Conversations Training gives you the skills to be able to say exactly what you mean, exactly how you mean it. Visit vitalsmarts.com.au slash DSTM for an exclusive offer. A couple of the zingers that I loved is when he asked Australian actress Kate Blanchett to fix his DVD player because she worked, quote-unquote, in the film industry. <laughs> Journalists have to be able to have the capacity to speak to people freely, off the record, and with secrecy to allow their sources to have the freedom to speak. If that stops, then a whole part of our, our societal system has broken down. I'm the big boss today because yeah, exactly. the bigger boss is away, so little bosses having oh, fun. God. These were the times when we, the writers, could actually engage with the players and the coaches and the administrators off the record and on the record in circumstances that the modern footy writer really would have the opportunity to do so. Hey, Jeff, you're grumpy. What are you? You're always grumpy. You're always grumpy when my copy That's used to be That's not very true, Corey. <laughs> Get your copy in. Get your column in. Carol and I just wither. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corrie Perkin and minus my friend Caroline Wilson, who is currently somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere enjoying life on a beach. But I am delighted that up off the interchange bench is my good friend, my journalism and cooking mentor, editor and publisher, one of the finest sports writers ever to grace the back pages of the age, Jeff Slattery. Yay! Good golly, mentor. What a failure. What a failure. <laughs> oh, up yours. We've started off really well, haven't we? Well, Crucial Conversations are supposed to be about to say what you think is it <laughs> in the right possible way. I'm not sure Mr Vital Smarts would agree with the way we've approached it like head on, but uh, look, honesty is the best policy. Hey, Slats, it's good to have you back. It's nice to be here, Corrie, and um, that was just nonsense what I was saying. It's been fun over a long journey. What, are we back to 1979 or thereabouts? Yeah, I can remember you pogoing around the dance floor at my 21st. Uh, I don't know what pogoing is, but I remember the dance floor. It was upstairs at Lazar's on the corner of uh, King Street and La Trobe Street, Lonsdale Street. That's right. It's exactly right. I remember you having a dance with Lillian Frank. Oh, rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) Whose husband Richard owned Lazar's. It was a great spot for it. I did dance around Lillian Frank for many years when I was doing food writing. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot to get through in this episode, episode 89, including your greyhound obsession, which I've just, when I emailed you about what are we going to talk about, you said, oh, I haven't given any thought. I've just driven, was it 250K or 350K to visit a greyhound? I just I thought, he's mad. 350K down to Sea Spray. and Which is where? Uh, right on the east coast, almost to the east coast, near, near Sale, <clears throat> just short of Sale. And I don't reckon I've been past Warrigal for 40 years. So all these places like Trafalgar, Terrelgan, um, Rosedale, all just dots on the map as far as I was concerned. Bairnsdale. Well, I didn't get to Bairnsdale. That was sort of the next part of the journey. But um, obsessions are good things, Corrie. Obsessions are wonderful things. Well, one I could love... argue, not necessarily if they're dish lickers, but tell. I'm happy to. I'm happy to be convinced. Well, Johnny Anderson calls them flea taxis. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always been. I started my career as a racing writer for the Truth in 1971, so I've always been interested in the chase in one form or another, and it's too expensive to get involved in horse racing, and it's available to people to get involved in greyhound racing. And what you discover is that in horse racing, everything is left to the trainer, so the owner just pays the bills. In greyhound racing, you actually get to cuddle the pups. You get to cuddle the, the mother. You get to get onto the track after the race and cuddle the winner. So, it, Is and, that before or after you stick an injection of oh, <laughs> what, what, performance-enhancing drug-ins on the flea cru- taxi? Crucial Conversations sponsors this program. Doesn't it get through to the host? Grand racing cuddle is- the puppies. <laughs> and why do they all have such weird names? Well, they're not having... They why have- can't you call a, a puppy Corrie? 
or so, like or Sally after your missus. Well, I'll tell you what, I've got four pups, three bitches and one dog, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them at the moment because they're all very valuable. But I'll certainly keep at least one bitch. And one of the names I've got listed in my list of names potential is Erica Betts. <laughs> E-R-I-C-A. New word. Betts. <laughs> With two T's or one? Oh, just with one T. <laughs> what about Princess Corrie for her? Oh, I like that. goodness me, Princess Corrie. So Have tell you... us the name of, names of some of the ones you've had. I've had uh, Fangio. I've had uh, Tommy Brislane, who is a That champion. was the champ. You won yeah. lots of money with him, lots didn't you? Lots of uh, group one race with him. Suffragette, who's the, the mother of these pups. Oh, I'm happy with that name. Brabham. Um, Brabham. <laughs> Brabham. Tautology. Typo. Um, they're all sort of words that pop into my head from various places. Grift, Grifter. What about Fleet Street? Fleet Street. And not a nod to It's a good name, isn't it? No, I'd rather Spencer Street, where you and I found our, made the foundations of our journey in journalism. Those were the days, In the age building that had um, asbestos all in the roof. You did. Oh. And, yeah, we've, we've escaped that. Oh, no wonder, you know, wonder we're, <laughs> we're, we're a bit odd. <laughs> well, we... Uh, we have lots to talk about today, as I said. Uh, you're doing a fair bit of the lifting, and you don't need to say you've been doing that for me for 30 years because that's boom. 40. <laughs> boom. boom. 40. But you've got the crush, uh, and very out of character for you, Jeff. You're grumpy about something. I can't believe it. In BSF, uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat about a new book that your publishing company has produced, and I have a screen, and you have a recipe. And while Caro's away, the mice will play. We're going to have a bit of a chat about Donald Trump. We're going to put him on the agenda because Nance isn't always very keen about doing Donald Trump stuff. She well, says she gets depressed. You and Sam Newman seem to have a, a fixation with US politics. The rest of us just hate Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I've got one thing in common with Sam Newman. I'm glad that's all <laughs> I have in common with. Now, um, Jeff, you are a former sports writer and a sports editor, and for many years you were publisher of all the AFL publications. You're a former restaurateur. We loved Slattery's Restaurant in King Street, Valet, that beautiful restaurant. And then you became a food columnist and you've written cookbooks. And you are the brains behind the book publishing company Slattery Media. There is no end to your talents, and you are a greyhound, uh, you know, Breeder. Breeder and racer. What, what does retirement look like for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, it, it looks like all those things without the stresses of operating a business and all the issues that come with decision making. Because the toughest thing in business, well, the two toughest things in business are decision making. What do I do about this? What do I do about him? What do I do about her? What, what decision we need to make this week? And the second hardest thing is the cash flow, managing the cash flow and making sure there's enough money in the bank to pay the staff in the first instance and then fund whatever processes you want to put in place. So they're the issues that I will be happy to throw into the sink. But all the other things about creativity, I can't see any reason why I would stop. I'm so glad you said that because well, I think if, if creative minds, any minds, but creative minds should stay creative for the rest of their lives. Well, we started this conversation about obsession, and an obsession of mine is about being creative, about seeing ideas, about thinking of visions that you can actually implement or others can. You know, And <clears throat> to me, that's the great criticism I've got of the Australian political system at the moment. We, we're not we're not confronted with a vision that actually seems appropriate for our culture, our history and our future. There is none. You, you might say that there's a difference in the Victorian system where there's a vision for infrastructure growth, which is 40 years too late in my view. You know, yesterday I drove back from Gippsland and confronted the Monash Freeway. So I'm coming in and they're going out and there were hundreds, thousands, thousands of headlights coming out of the city towards the east. And no one's moving. No one's moving. Um, and as happened on um, Tuesday morning, when there was a crash in the morning, the whole freeway gets closed. So there's a, there's a systematic problem with uh, public transport and the need for infrastructure to grow. And thank goodness we're doing something like that in Victoria. So I, I just, that, that's, my obsession is hoping that in the future there's a vision for us that we can all embrace and it's not about disputative and opposition politics. Oh, joy to the world. 
Oh, would you want to sing that? <laughs> oh, we've got a couple of, uh, of comments in our housekeeping section. Thankfully, no apologies, Jeff. That must have something to do with Caro being away, maybe. We haven't made any gaffes this week. Oh, <laughs> but, um, can can like... I mention the John Lennon... Uh, uh... Oh, not the Yoko Ono John Lennon <laughs> documentary. I'm sorry, everyone. I just hope you find it somewhere in, in the digital ether. Uh, a shout out to Heather Dyer, one of our potties. Uh, she commented on the alimentari recipe, the chicken recipe, Jeff, that I had last week, which I think is a winner. She said, I love alimentari and this dish looks good. I bought the Gourmet Traveller magazine Caro talked about and cooked the tempered dal. What a terrific dish. Loved it. Thanks, ladies. Well, that's good. I'm glad we're, um, if nothing else, we're providing the, the podsters with a whole range of uh, recipes and you'll have a couple to add to their collection, Jeff, later on. Uh, on our Instagram account, Don't Shoot Pod, Anna Davies agree with the GLT this week. My daughter, aged 22, went to Lulu Mon, Lulu, what is it, Lulu Lemon, recently to buy her first ever sports bra after having a breast reduction. And the lovely sales assistant was so inspired by her story, she gave her the bra for free. Such a lovely gesture from a big company. It made her day. And we've got another one too from Gab underscore E underscore Gabrielle. I love this pod, but my eight-year-old is not a fan. Oh, I must send you the video she made of herself bored and falling asleep listening to you guys when I was driving. I just have to look at my husband to see that. Perhaps you can be a guest on the show, the (laughs) eight-year-old. That's enough, I think. Now we might just move on. Um, what What do I want to talk about with you? I want to talk about just briefly... This whole situation, Jeff, that's occurred with the raids by the federal police last week on firstly the home of a News Limited journalist and then in the ABC offices, which went on for nine hours, captured somewhat brilliantly by head of news at the ABC, John Lyons, who just tweeted through the whole process and stayed with the cops. Uh, there's lo- this is a moving story, and by the time Potties listen to this, it's probably moved into yet another political space. But I wanted to ask you, as uh, a seasoned and award-winning journalist, these raids, what impact do you think this has and will have on the community and journalists and whistleblowers? Well, on the community... It, in it, other words, why should everybody out there be caring about this issue? Because journalists have the role that they've had for centuries, which is to expose cant and nonsense within the public system and in the in business and where, where things fail. And the only way that those things can happen effectively is if journalists are allowed to um, speak to sources off the record to find out exactly what's happening without the people standing in front of um, billboards and wearing high-vis vests who are spousing rubbish just for the sake of uh, a, a quick grab on the, on the six o'clock news. Journalists have to be able to have the capacity to speak to people freely, off the record, and with secrecy um, to, to allow their sources to have the freedom to speak. If, if that stops, then a whole part of our, um, our societal system has broken down. And the thing that affects the community is... You see these suited men with briefcases and computers entering the ABC like they're a um, attack force without understanding of where the information to make that call on the ABC and Annika Smithhurst came from, uh, what they were seeking, why they were seeking it and for whom they were seeking it. And if it, if it ends up being hidden under some sort of terrorism, uh, national security basket, then anything's possible to enter, to enter into that sphere. Now, we don't have here in Australia the First Amendment like the US does, and we don't have the uh, press freedom rules and regulations that the UK does. Uh, new, new legislation has made it easier, if you like, for federal police, police, are they acting alone on the instruction of the government or the minister, I don't know, but it's made them. It's made it easier for this. What happened, particularly at the ABC uh, last week, for them to just walk in, as you said, with their briefcases. I think John Lyons. They had to order fourteen cafe lattes or something, and <laughs> and toasted sandwiches. And as John Lyons tweeted at one stage, uh, you know, these sorts of raids are not like they used to be. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> sitting around having their coffee. Yeah. But well, uh, but you know what do we what do we need to do? I mean, Anthony Albanese has come out saying that he uh, has urged the prime minister to address 
press freedom. Will there be, be some sort of pullback or amendment to the current new legislation? Uh, and where, where the, what's the way out for the politicians? Well, as I understand it, this was affected under old legislation, not new legislation. Um, and the new legislation is tougher. Well, it goes back to that point, who decides to make the call? What are they seeking? Why are they seeking it? And what's the outcome likely to be? I mean, you and I can just imagine what Annika Smethurst went through. A knock on the door, she'd been out, she came back home, found these police in there, and they went through every component of her life, including flicking through cookbooks. So they might have, she, they might have found one of my recipes there, written in, oh, you know... Don't might, flatter yourself. <laughs> she might have found my old cookbook there from 1991, Corrie. That's a complete invasion of someone who's doing their job and we can only hope that common sense applies and that this sort of stuff is stopped at the highest level through legislation, understanding that the government needs to be protective of our rights to live a free and easy life in a community that's not affected by terrorism. And we just need to reiterate that journalists jumping up and down about this and covering the story, well, therein lies the first line. They're covering the story. Yes, there's there's self-interest at heart here, but more particularly it's for the community's benefit and it's for the whistleblowers, for future whistleblowers to feel that they can come forward and and help journalists shine light in dark corners. Yeah, I agree 100%. And to see this person who's in front of the courts at the moment facing 160 years in jail is just beyond the pale. Um, Jeff, while we're talking about journalism and the importance of it, it's made me think about Barry Cassidy's farewell on The Insiders on the ABC last Sunday. Did you see it? I did. It was a, it, 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 Wasn't it? Was it a great show? It was a great show and, and um, my children look at me with some sort of madness every Sunday morning and say, why are you watching this show? I've been watching it since the beginning, um, and it's the one program that I can see that actually uh, cuts into the, the rhythm of politics and attempts to explain it through different points of view, um, some from the left, some from the middle, some from the right, and, and does it in a way that um, is a mix of serious and lighthearted. Um, and that's what they did on the weekend, and, and the video... A praise of Barry was unfettered and clear and clean and wonderful. And bipartisan. All of that, yep. And he almost broke down at the end, but just got away with it, just that, like a good that, Collingwood man. <laughs> that crumpled face almost crumpled a bit too much. It did. And uh, as he said, that he, he, he even secrets are kept at his own house because he didn't know his children were going to be involved in the, in the praise of him. Um, all praise to Barry. And as I understand it, although it's been kept under wraps, he won't be lost to journalism and to the political sphere. And that's wonderful news. The funny thing is that... <clears throat> Have you heard I, anything on that? No, I haven't. But I was just going to say that we're going back in time that uh, when I started at the Australian in 1977, Barry was covering World Series cricket out at Waverley Park for the ABC. So he And he's always been a sports freak. And not only did he found insiders, but also offsiders, which Correct. is the next half hour of the of the show. So watching it the other morning, it took me back to when you and I and a bunch of other reprobates started the Sunday Age back in 1989. We're coming up for our 30th anniversary, actually. And we started, the, there hadn't been a Sunday Age, uh, and the new Sunday papers started in Melbourne, the Sunday Herald and the Sunday Sun and the Sunday, Sunday Age. Age. And... Our mission was, or the kind of the mantra that we all followed, was to as much extent as we could reflect on the news of the week that had been, we had to set the agenda for the week that was coming ahead. And we had to make sure with good journalism that whichever stories we told, and those important ones, particularly on the front and back pages, that they led the agenda for the week for the debate. And I think to some extent, the the newspaper was successful there. This was certainly mentioned by more than one person the other day on the Barry Cassidy farewell, that over the 18 years since he invented this show, he's hosted it, he's run it, and he's applied you know, all the right principles of journalism to this show. 
it has become an agenda setter, as you said, but it's also become such a part of our mornings. You say the kids look at you and go, why are you watching the telly on a Sunday? Well, if we can't watch it on a Sunday, if, if I'm working at the shop, for example, on a Sunday, I'll tape it and go home and watch it on a Sunday night. It has become part of the lifestyle, which I think is a great tribute to Barry because the show will live on after him. It will, and that was his um, last moment in the show to make sure that that the people who have followed him in the show for 18 years continue to follow because, as he said, the same coach, the same captain, the same players will be involved. Just uh, the Sunday Age, um, 1989, when Hawkey died a couple of weeks ago, the photo that Wayne Ludby took on the front page of uh, Hawkey and Keating with hand over Keating's slightly taller shoulders um, brought back great memories of not just the newspaper and that front page, but also the person who organised that photo, which was Michael Gordon. Mm. Um, nearly 18 months since Michael died, and he never leaves my thoughts. Um, and that was just another reminder of what he did and what he was capable of. And and that goes back to what we were talking about before, about sources and, and capacity to actually um, get behind the story, because... He was able to organise that photo because he has relationships directly with the Prime Minister and the Treasurer at the time to create a photo that um, encompassed a partnership that was wavering but was still slightly intact, and that photo says it all. Um, And I was very pleased to see it republished many times and and part of the hawky tributes on television, that that just flashed in and out. And Wayne Ludby is still going strong, Um, a little bit bigger than he might have been in 1989. Oh, saucer of milk for you. <laughs> Meow. Um, but still taking great photos. And, and he was at the front of the uh, media again on the weekend with that series of photos about the bloke who was a, a suggested called um, the umpire a flog. Ah, yes. And uh, the security point out by uh, Matthew, uh, Matt Nichols, the umpire. One of our great news photographers, Wayne Ludby. I absolutely agree. And on the Mike Gordon thing too, he was, of course, a great friend of Barry Cassidy's as well. I'm with you. I think about Mickey all the time and I think about him when these big moments happen. These yeah. big, like the election campaign slats, it was like Mike was in my head. And I, look, family members will testify how many times I was watching the television and, and the journalists wouldn't ask the extra question or the hard question or once over lightly they were going down that pathway and I was just like, where's Mike Gordon to tell the truth? The funny thing about Mick and uh, Insiders, he only appeared once because he had the broadcast news issues that he'd, <laughs> oh, get, he'd get into so an amazing tiss and be, be unable to be coherent in front of a camera. Oh, um, great memories and fond memories of Mike Gordon. Uh, I want to take us to the UK now uh, on Air Force One with the Trump family, the entourage. Um I don't know what you thought about last week's trip by Donald Trump and the family to, first of all, visit the Queen and the state reception and all of the uh, all of the trappings of that, but then his visit to commemorate the anniversary of D-Day, and um, <laughs> and just the appalling sense of judgment call he made to appear on Fox TV. At 14 minutes before they were supposed to have the formal proceedings with royal family members, all the pre- uh, Emmanuel Macron, all the presidents and prime ministers involved, including our own Scott Morrison, and he's doing an interview, and he and he decided to have a crack at that time at Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, and of course our war veteran, decorated war veteran, and special um, counsellor Robert Mueller, and the whole proceedings were held up for 14 minutes while he was doing his interview. But that explains Trump. He's just the, the ultimate narcissist. We need Caravaggio to come back from the dead to paint him, I think. Um, Preferably falling into the water yeah, rather than looking, looking at his own. Yeah. The, um, the, the National Catholic Reporter, which is actually a really good, of course I only get it online, but it's a really good American conservative uh, but really good news source, they had, their headline was President Trump and embarrassment throughout UK D-Day trip, and that sort of said it all really to me. Well, I sent you a link to a, an essay in The Guardian by Marina Hyde, um, which described the visit to, of Trump as slightly to the um, slightly worse than the Brexit fiasco. That, um, and, and I just want to read a paragraph from that piece, which 
if you if um, listeners can just source Marina Hyde Trump Guardian, and there's a, 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 a there's a beep. Have we got a beep facility in here, Jane? Oh, you can swear. <laughs> Be my guest. Um, Caro's away. Say what you like. Countless moments would have been best served by silence. Sarah Huckabee Sanders scowling out of an upper window of Buckingham Palace smoke like Mrs Danvers, which we'll get to later. Mm. A close-up of Trump's preposterously ill-fitting attire for the state banquet. A far more disrespectful, disrespectful act of tailoring than even the time the late Alexander McQueen sewed the words, I am a beep, inside the lining of a suit for Prince Charles. Any footage of Melania Trump, whose miserable countenance seems living testament to the old adage that when you marry for money, you earn every penny. And for, for <laughs> listeners who haven't yet gone to The Guardian, the beep rhymes with the, with the uh, kick that Jack Dyer invented all those years ago. It's a word we don't mention on this program. But we've, but, we've, got, we've but, got the gist. But Kara's away and uh, I know it's... <laughs> But if you go, but if you're going on a state visit before you go, you you say that one of the members of the royal family is nasty. You have a me, a real crack at the London mayor, Sadiq Khan, because he's uh, he he just got over the line in the in the Lord Mayoral elections, uh, and also he's Pakistani born. So I think that must really get up Donald Trump's goat, and he's the first Muslim mayor of of. Of London, so, you know, kind of go figure. Actually, he wasn't born in Pakistan. He's the son of a Pakistani uh, migrant. Corrie, you could go on I could. and on and on and on and on. Am I convincing you? <laughs> you don't need to convince me. <laughs> he is a whacker. Okay, Jeff, on to um, sport, I think, and a couple of things I wanted to gauge your opinion on. Ash Barty's win in the French Open, the AFL Hall of Fame, and what's the criteria? And, and it was announced last week who was in, and I wondered what you thought. But let's start with the Adam Goods documentary, which uh, had its official screening and debut at the Sydney Film Festival last weekend. I imagine that you haven't seen it, even though you're still very well connected in the AFL. No, I haven't seen it, but uh, you, you, Corey has, uh, Caro has seen it, and she covered it. Um, in some detail last week, I understand. I just wondered quickly, what you, do you think this is some sort of a turning point? You've worked with the AFL closely for many years on the massaging of the message on on racial vilification and any any of, of that sort of uh, activity that occurs yeah. well, the first, on or off the field. First thing we need to say about the AFL and racial vilification is they are incredibly serious about ensuring that no vilification of any form happens on the field or through their spectators, um, and they've done enormous work in that area to um, modify behaviour. Um, in, in our days of riding footy, it was the case of what's said on the field stays on the field, and whatever we think might get under the edge of a player then we'll do it. And that was famously the words of Tony Shaw, which he's apologised for. And even next door with, um, in the SEN studio with Gary Lyon, who is shamefaced about what he did in the footy field, but it was a, it was a, a time when those things were, let's say, accepted but not accepted. And then came Michael Long. So the AFL has been at the forefront of change behaviour, but I must say I was astonished when the apology was sent to my email on, I don't know, Friday, I think. And it included a couple of paragraphs which I was just was scratching my head about. <clears throat> the history of the game says Australian rules has officially been played for 161 years. Fair enough. So this paragraph followed that. For many years before, Aboriginal history tells us that traditional forms of football were played by Australia's first peoples all over Australia, most notably in the form of Marnbrook in the western districts of Victoria. It is Australia's only Indigenous, capital I, football game, a game born from the ancient traditions of our country. It is a game that is proudly Australian. The underlying thesis behind that paragraph suggests that Australian football was founded by Indigenous Australians. Which we know is not true. Which has been supported by some historians but pilloried, pilloried by others. 
and I'm in the middle of editing a book on the history of Australian football and the first couple of chapters are about the evolution of the game and it's clear that um, this was an Anglo-Saxon invention from people who came from the rugby school, from Trinity College in, in Dublin and from all over England and, and Ireland, basically. And they came to Melbourne and they flourished through the paddocks of Richmond Paddock opposite the MCG um, around the 1850s. But the Marnbrook story is that they used to kick uh, uh, possum skins around. Yeah, but that's fine and, and there's no doubt that that happened. But and it's not actually the game as it, it we know it. It didn't develop into mm. Australian football. And the other thing that um, I was a little bit surprised about to read in the um, apology from the AFL, we apologise unreserved unreservedly for our failures during this period. Failure to call out racism, not standing up for one of our own, let down all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players past and present. The, the, the underlying um, feeling behind that sentence is that they have defined that the booing of Adam Goods was based on racism. And I can't bring myself to say that that was the reason why it happened and how it evolved how mobs work as mobs is completely unclear. Now, there are occasions when um, it's very clear what the reason for a booing is. Steve Smith and, and um, David Warner, for example. But in this case, I, I just I, I recall being at footy when Adam was booed, but I just don't know why it happened. And surely there's racism involved in it, but to, to label that as the only reason is just going a step too far. Now, I haven't seen the documentary, but it, it would probably be the most hyped documentary that nobody's seen in the history of documentaries. And are you suggesting then that the AFL has had, or their media department has had a knee-jerk reaction to this? Uh, it's hardly knee-jerk because it's three years since he last played. But, but to, the, to the documentary? Um, possibly, but without having seen it, I don't know. Um, it, it's a very complex decision, and what's clear is that this is clear. Adam Goods was terribly affected by it to the extent that he lost the love of the game, um, lost his capacity to be um, applauded at the grand final through that cavalcade of former heroes. Um, not the first to want to miss out on that, but for reasons that were very clear that why he didn't and uh, he couldn't expose himself to that. He deserves only praise for the way he played the game. Um, through all of his career in various roles to win two Brownlow medals, to come from where he did, um, an incredible player and an incredible person and a great leader of his people. Mm. Well, I think we'd love to have you back when you and I have seen the documentary and maybe we can have a three-way talk. Yes. Um, it would be interesting. And the Stan Grant documentary is a different version, which is about... Uh, living journalism rather than uh, a cut and paste of what happened during the period that he was that Adam was being booed. Well, they're two complementary. Uh, you it would imagine so, but we're sources. being we're, we're guessing because we haven't seen. Them. <laughs> we are okay. So quickly, Ash Barty, lover. Uh, how could you not? Yeah, how um, could you not? Because she she plays she plays the game to use a line from the Geelong Footy Club. She plays the game as it was meant to be played, and. She plays with honesty, with purpose, with values, with sportsmanship. Um, is it a sportswomanship? We'll just call it sportsmanship. We'll leave it there. Oh, okay. Okay. So you're the chairman of this <laughs> podcast. I'm the big boss today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the bigger boss is away, so little boss is having oh, fun. Oh, God. She um, – I watched the semifinal in, in – I wasn't sure when it started, and by the time I got onto the television – she was 5-1 up and won the first five games, and I thought, oh, this is all right. And then she just went bang, 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 and the other player was just tremendous, the 17-year-old American. And then she fought back to win with the most It was an extraordinary fight back. Equanimity of spirit and purpose and understanding the capacity of her game. It was just a beautiful thing to watch and her response. And um, at the end of it, when she just realised that she'd hit the winner, she stood at the Met at the net and went, oh, beep, <laughs> which was another great moment. And that's, that's one that rhymes with that thing that you have in Chinese restaurants in between pancakes. 
<laughs> I can't work that out. What would that be? A picking. <laughs> <laughs> you idiot. Now, AFL Hall of Fame. Yes. I've never been entirely sure about this as an entity because it seems that every year we're just dragging people in off the interchange. There's a, there are occasional worthy ones. I'd like uh. to see the big boss of this podcast actually be one of the women who gets on the Hall of Fame one year. But anyway, well, that's, I, I we'll dispute put that, that to I dispute that because... You dispute what? Caro getting onto the Hall of not, Fame? Not because of any capacity, but because I don't believe a Hall of Fame should include journalists, administrators. But or it um, does. Or, but it does, and it's just a failure. Okay, so tell us what you think. What's, what should be the criteria? Just looking at this year's inductees, Mick Malthouse, yep. Trevor Barker, Ken Hunter, Ron Evans... Jimmy Dean, who I think was from Adelaide, wasn't he? South Adelaide. Yes, yep. and Brad Hardy. Uh, mightn't have been South Adelaide, but certainly an, an Adelaide player. Um, look, I, I find that the Hall of Fame has got issues because I believe that it should be recast from, say, 1990, <coughs> back in time, to allow for an induction of all those great players who are gently being introduced. So, for example, Jim Dean's one of those who played in the 50s in in South Australia. Um, And it should be brought up to speed to incorporate all those people, including legends of the game who who should be included, people like uh, Jack Worrell, the first coach who coached Carlton and Essendon in the the 1900s and 10s. the great coach, the the one who introduced coaching, others uh, in that era and before 1897 who probably deserves to be in there and, and haven't been listed. And then, oh, I mean, we've got administrators, so they're going to stay there. So the Hall of Fame will have those. Of but those, if you were setting it up now, you would say only players and only coaches. I would, yeah. Yeah, because they're the, one that, they're the ones that we go to um, the game to enjoy and understand um, and barrack for. We don't barrack for umpires. We don't barrack for administrators. Um, so Ron Evans deserves to be included in the Hall of Fame. But I've written to the AFL more than once that says, tell me, how can you have a Hall of Fame when the founders of the game are not in the Hall of Fame? William Hammersley, James Thompson, um, Red Smith, they're not in it. These are the people who wrote the first laws. The only one in there is Tom Wills, who... Has, has had a cheer squad in the 1980s, 90s and, and so on for being this genius who introduced Australian football via a letter he wrote to, um, to the weekly magazine extolling cricketers to actually play a winter sport. Um, and, and who also, later killed himself by stabbing himself in the stomach with the scissors. Nice Was way it to go. five times or seven times? I mean, how do you go in, out, in, out? Probably as many times as he could because before he ran out of breath. <laughs> So Tom had mental issues and alcoholism and all those sorts of things. He was a great um, visionary and, and player of cricket and football mm-hmm. in the time. But but you're right, the founding fathers, the other founding fathers need there. to be acknowledged. Not there. So, oh, well, it's an look, interesting. Every year we always have the same chat about do. the Hall of Fame. You can't deny the capacity of uh, Ken Hunter, Trevor Barker or Brad Hardy um, to be in it and when I watched the... You left Mick Malthouse out. Um, Mick is Mick's is a natural, should be in it, um, because of his record um, and his commitment to the game over the long journey, and he's still committed to it. His column in the Sunday Herald Sun is some of the most illuminating writing about footy at the moment. And, um, you know, I, I travelled through Ireland when Mick was coach of the Australian team, and he, his personality off the field is very different to the one you see in videos and, and, and coaches' conference and, and the like, which is often the case. Um, which, back to Ash Barty, I don't think we can say that about her. I think what we see is what she is. Yeah, I agree. She's, um, she's got a long way to go, that girl. Hey, Jeff, we're going to do Crush of the Week. Well, in fact, you are going to do Crush of the Week. And... For the first time, we're actually in the history of this long esteemed podcast, Don't Shoot the Messenger, we are actually going to have the same crush as we had last week. But you're going to tell me why Neil Danaher is your crush. Gee, did I miss that last week? (laughs) You're a a fan listener, but 
Um, I'm really happy with the the. Uh, I'm really happy with you talking to this one because you know Neil Danaher and you covered so many of his yeah. highs and lows in footy. You, you can't you can't add too many credits to what Neil's done. Not just since he's been diagnosed with um, this terrible disease, but before as a a player and then as a coach of Melbourne Footy Club. 2015, he came to me with a need for a logo and the look and feel of a website to promote fundraising for the disease. At the time, I was amazed at his stoicism and purpose. I shouldn't have been because when he played footy, he was like that. When he coached Melbourne, he was like that. He's unchanging in his need to bring people along the journey that he is on either as a player or as a coach. Back in 1981, he won the game for Essendon against Carlton in a most amazing match at Princess Park. Carlton was 26 points up with a few minutes to go, and the game was all over. And I covered the game for the age, and I looked it up when I knew that we were coming on here, and I wrote this paragraph. There were three reasons why Essendon won, and the third was it needed a match winner. Neil Danaher, in an inspiring, incredible solo effort, provided that, marking twice within range in the last two minutes. Only someone as cool as Danaher could have goaled in such circumstances. He did that too. That paragraph... Fine writing. And of course, while you're covering that great game, that was the year I covered footy. I was probably down at Cadinia Park watching... Yeah, 12th and 11th. 12th and 13th. Yeah, yeah, 11th and 12th. Yeah. I was at the previous. When you read back that paragraph and think of what he's doing right now, yeah. you just, it, nothing's changed. No, you're you know? absolutely right. Um, and, and back in 2015, when we were setting up this website, he, he wrote a, an essay which was about Neil. I just want to read the first bit. My family upbringing taught me to count my blessings. Whenever I felt down, harshly treated or just feeling sorry for myself, I was encouraged to count my blessings. Mine has been a charmed life and will continue to be. I was reminded that I only needed to watch the 6pm news or visit a children's hospital to quickly realise that many people have much tougher challenges in life than me. I learnt that to move forward you need to remain positive, to be resilient and act in a way that takes you forward. As I grew older I also started to understand that with every crisis there comes an opportunity. Yes, I have a terminal disease, but with this I have an opportunity." And by God, hasn't he lived that opportunity? Well, I tell you what, if Potties didn't have a chance to give uh, over the big freeze weekend to the motor neuron disease, you can log on to fightmnd.org.au. It's really good to hear your thoughts and the consistency of this guy. He's been a hero all of our adult lives. Yeah, and, and during this period when we were doing this design for the website, I said to him that the first person who had done it was going on leave and the next person to take it over was a Carlton supporter. And Neil came back, he said, I hope he wasn't around in 1981. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he does it all with a humour yeah, and a purpose. and just such grace. He's such yeah. a champ. Hey, Jeff, you're grumpy. What are you, you're, you're always grumpy. You're always grumpy when my copy That's used to be That's not very late. true, Corey. <laughs> Get your copy in. Oh, Get your God. column in. Oh, Carol and I just wither that is not when you're grumpy. Either. So you're grumpy about restaurants, I think. Well, I'm grumpy about a few restaurants or, or occasional restaurants that when you present your credit card for payment, they say to the, um, there'll be a 1% or 2% surcharge on your bill, sir. And every time that happens, I put them down in my barred list, never to attend again. They can justify that to a certain extent by saying, we have to pay the credit card provider a percentage of whatever money we get through the card. But that overlooks the fact that the service that's provided by having the card available for a customer to use and also the fact that their reporting system is so clear and clean, comes through on on their uh, statement every week, they don't have to worry about carrying cash to the bank and the capacity of their staff to be mugged. They eliminate the opportunity for any pilfering out of the till, which, you know, unfortunately happens in hospitality and other industries. Although it might be only sense, it's the issue that really bugs me. You know what? I just say tough titties. Tough titties, as Marshila would say. Tough beep. <laughs> no, we can say t- tough titties. We're quoting Marshila. You know, I have a bookshop, Jeff, and we sell a lot of greeting cards, and they might be five fifty or five ninety five or something. And people say, "Can I use my card?" Yeah, no problem. I know a lot of shops actually have a ten dollar minimum, 
But it's what you just have to suck it up. It's a good. It's not only a goodwill gesture for all those other reasons mm-hmm. that you said before. It makes your accounting practice, practices at the end of the day so much easier. And I recall our time together. Your accounting practices would have been just superb. Oh, can we beep that? <laughs> beep, beep. <laughs> They haven't improved. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Looking at the fortunes of the bookshop. And you know what? But you're right. It is a really churlish, nasty attitude, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, just exploiting the moment. And you've also got a thing about tips, haven't you, on the on the little portable FPOS machine, well, which I still can't work out. Yeah. Apparently, I tipped a waiter the other night $120. Thankfully, he showed me that I had made an error. But yeah. thankfully, he did. Yeah, and they stand over you with the FPOS machine as you uh, – are exposed to the line that says tip question mark and then you press the wrong button and you put $500 down which is the cost of the whole meal for 10 and then the bloke says in your case I'm sorry you've made an error and then we go back again but they're standing over you expecting a tip and and the look when you go no tip I I hate the concept of tipping in Australia because although there have been controversial moments in in entertainment industry and uh, hospitality recently about people being underpaid. I ran restaurants for nigh on 10 years probably and we paid everybody by the award and including work cover and superannuation on the way through. Australian restaurateurs do the job they should do in area of paying people. There's no need for tip, it's a bonus. And I would wonder if we listed every uh, hospitality servant, whether in the kitchen or, or in front of the house, whether these tips appear on the tax return. Mm, there you go. Look, what's wrong with the jar beside the cash register or, yeah, you know, the machine? Yeah. Well, it goes register. back to the issue of tipping and then the intimidation factor of the person standing over you with the post machine waiting for you to go, beep. Uh, another beep. Hey, Jeff, we're going to do BSF now, book, screen and food. And this segment, of course, is brought to us by our buddies at Vital Smarts. Is your organisation suffering from unsupportive, lazy or poor performers? Vital Smarts training gives you and your staff the skills to speak up and hold each other accountable. Used by over 300 of the top Fortune 500 companies and globally proven to solve communication and behaviour problems in any culture or industry. Crucial conversations, as Jeff mentioned before, and crucial accountability training gives you the tools and skills to talk about almost anything, even the toughest issues. So visit vitalsmarts.com.au slash DSTM for a listener-only offer. And, of course, you'll find more info there. Now, we were going to discuss a couple of books that related to your Mrs. Danvers mention uh, before, and I'm full steam in my head, full steam ahead for my walk in Cornwall to meet Caro in a few days, and I'm full in my head of Daphne du Maurier, who lived in the area of southern Cornwall in Foy. And I think we're going to actually, on one of our walking days, have a have a pilgrimage to Daphne's various residences and places. In fact, I think her ashes are scattered off the cliff somewhere near Foy. Anyway, off topic, but I have been reading her, and I've almost finished her biography by Tatiana de Rosne, who many listeners will know wrote that terrific novel a few years ago, Sarah's Key. And the book is uh, somewhat disconcertingly to begin with, Jeff. It's a biography of Daphne du Maurier, but Tatiana writes it in the first person and in the present. So there's a lot of her, but then she brings herself out of it, but she still writes in the first person. So, Who's the first person in this case? Uh, sorry, no, sorry, not the first person. She's sorry. She writes in the present. So she'll say, Daphne had Daphne did not know what to do. Daphne... Travel. Daphne travels to Egypt. Daphne. So it's a bit disconcerting because you. Uh, she's trying to put you in the mind of the character. Anyway, I got, I'm, I'm used to it and I'm loving it. I have to say, Daphne du Maurier had a very interesting life, and like a lot of female writers back in the early 20th century, when they're juggling children and marriages and their writing passion, I'm thinking of Ina Blyton in particular, had um, a most difficult uh, time to combine it all. So that is that book. And, of course, her big novel was Rebecca. Of all, she she did My Cousin Rachel, House on the Strand, a whole number of other novels. But Rebecca, Rebecca is the one that you're referring to with the Mrs. Danvers, which yeah. I am taking away with me. I read it when I was younger, much younger. And I just remember it being incredibly creepy and this slightly dysfunctional 
marriage between Maxim de Winter and the unnamed narrator, who is a rather mousy, uh, not particularly charismatic young woman who Max, Maxim meets after his wife, Rebecca, has died. And so the second Mrs. de Winter has to live up to Rebecca the first. Fascinating yeah. book. So my, my life is spent reading good and bad manuscripts. So I have little time to read novels of any ca- uh, capacity, either old, new or future. Um, and when I read this piece in The Guardian about Mrs Danvers, I wasn't aware of Daphne du Maurier's book or, or the movie. So I looked it up and the the role of um, De Winter is played by Laurence Olivier. Correct. Great movie. the unnamed Mrs De Winter, brackets two, is played by Joan Fontaine. And I I wasn't aware of the movie. Um, it was Hitchcock's first Hollywood movie in 1940. And so last night I attempted to watch it on YouTube. It runs for two hours, 45 minutes. And the heavy lid started to come in at one hour and 30. Um, but the... Did you get to meet Mrs. Danvers? You would have. Oh, Mrs. Danvers! Oh my God! It is just the most wonderful portrayal of a horrible woman. That wait till you get to the end. (laughs) Anyway, it's look. It's sort of a screen book combo, isn't it? Because the the film is really, really worth seeing. I'm sure you can see it somewhere better than YouTube. Uh, probably. It was re-released a couple of years ago. Of, of, of Oh, probably of for cover. the 80th uh, anniversary or something. Uh, of Hitchcock, maybe? Uh, no, the, uh, the book being published. Oh, okay. Um, so the movie was 1940. Yeah, and the and book w- came out in, in uh, 1938 or 39. Okay. But what's interesting is Mrs. Danvers is played by um, Judith Anderson, who was born in Adelaide. And the casting of her is just astonishing. And it's worth when Olivier and Fontaine are driving into Mandalay and he says, you'll meet Mrs. Danvers and she'll look after everything. And the first time we meet Mrs. Danvers is just the most uh, wonderful thing. And it'd be like when your grandchild does something wrong and you go, Hattie! <laughs> That's the look that Mrs. Danvers gives uh, Mrs. De Winter. No, Hattie gets cross with me. I never get cross ah, with her. Okay. Oh, very, She's the one so, that's always telling me off. So I've got an hour and 20 minutes to go tonight to finish off yeah, the movie. Yeah, good. But you should also read the book. It's an absolute ripper. And in fact, the, the Mandalay uh, is based on a house in Cornwall that um, you can't see from the street or the fields. It's well hidden, but it's called Menabili and it, it is the home. Daphne Jamari rented it for about 25 years and her children grew up there. But I just wanted to quickly mention this gift that you're about to give me, or maybe you're not giving it to me. Maybe you want me to buy a few copies and sell it oh, in the no, bookshop. Oh, no, I'm giving it to you. <laughs> what is this electrifying 80s, footies outrageous decade in the words of its best writers? Am I in here? Uh, I'm not sure because it was edited by one of my staff, Russell Jackson, and he chose. Oh, look, uh, there's a little picture byline of you. Yeah, don't I look fantastic? You look like, I always thought that moustache, you know, that was very <laughs> village people. I've still got that dinkers at home somewhere. It's made in lead in the old days of hot metal. What a great book. So you've got, you've got a cast of thousands contributing here. Martin Flanagan, as we said earlier, our darling friend, Mike Gordon, Gary Linnell. Are there any women folk in here? Uh, Wilson's in there, but I'm not sure of any other. Peter Simonovich, Lindsay Murdoch. Lindsay Murdoch is Greg now Baum. in. Greg Yes, some of, some are still going strong. Um, the, the late great um, Peter McFarlane. Oh, this is a ripper! What a lovely collection. So, what, what's really interesting in there is is the words are terrific by some terrific writers in an era of footy writing that's completely different from the modern um, era. These were the times when we, the writers, could actually engage with the players and the coaches and the administrators off the record and on the record in circumstances that the modern footy writer rarely would have the opportunity to do so. So you see coaches these days in front of a a board with all the sponsors on it, and at the end of the press conference, they walk off. In my day that and your day too, Corrie, press conference was held in a huddle in the coach's room, surrounded by tape and... In the change eucalyp- room. ...eucalyptus, yeah. Um, and 
the coach was then available afterwards to Kenny reporters who'd say, listen, can I just talk about that a bit further, you know, whether on the record or off the record? Or if you wanted to catch up with them, Jeff, you'd go down to Arden Street and meet Dennis Pagan for a coffee yeah, at the yeah. local cafe. He yeah. wouldn't tell the media department. There wouldn't be any provisos on the meeting. Well, Russell Jackson edited that book and he reminded me that one of the pieces that I've got in there is of a, an occasion whereby... I rang Alan Jeans on the night before the footy and said, can you get me in the rooms before the game? And Alan said, no worries, there'll be tickets on the door for you. He organised the tickets for me to get into the rooms before the game as the coach on the night before. So it's just unimaginable to be And it was just such, it was a golden era of sports writing too, which is not to take anything away from the practitioners now, but it really, the early 70s, sorry, the early 80s, late 70s, there was just a change in Australian sporting journalism. You were part of it. I just swung on everybody's coattails learning as much as I could, as I would go and watch the, you know, footy training on a Thursday night at Cardinia Park. And it was nine degrees. You would never have gone to Cadinia Park, maybe Arden Street. (laughs) (laughs) I did go to Arden Street. Oh, the Lake Oval, I was there a lot. But but one thing we should say about that is at that time we had time. In this era, the reporters are expected to file – when the siren sounds, oh, which is just ridiculous, and then they have other media commitments too. They're on, they have yeah, podcasts, and they have stuff. they've got to file for the net and so on. So this wonderful book, Electrifying Eighties, when is it coming out? It's out this week, and price would be? Uh, I think it's twenty nine ninety five. Oh, what a rip off! <laughs> <laughs> just to read you in print, uh, good one. I've, I'll um, I'll take ten copies for the shop. Thanks very much, and I'll probably up the order when Father's Day comes, Jeffrey. Oh, good. Now, uh, we've already done Scream, as we said. You've got to watch Rebecca, everyone, the original one with uh, Laurence Olivier. And you have a recipe. I did ask, I want to ask you, why do my quinces not turn pink? Miss Jane had a theory on that. Janie, would you like to jump in and tell me why my quinces last week weren't pink? Well, I actually thought it was different varieties. And the ones that I'm growing, I don't know if they're the best ones to go red. But then I did some research and apparently you need acid in with the cook, so squeezing in a whole stack of lemon. I did that, Jane. I know. And so I think... Jeff it, says that in his... Or someone says that in their cookbook. Yeah. Jane gave me all, a lot of beautiful quinces the other day, Slats, and I went and made a, your very famous pear and quince crumble. No pink. I, I cooked them for seven hours. I, I put them on at about, you know, 11 o'clock or something. No, I don't think you can keep, keep cooking. I've burnt quince paste patches doing that. But I have a wonderful friend, Chris Thomas, uh, who's a farmer down in Glendorough, who is obsessed by sourcing heritage varieties of different things from the local area. I've now put her on the case of find me a quince that we can graft that goes blood red like my Nana's quince jam used to because I really think it might be a variety thing. Are we on the wrong track here, Jeff? I've I've got quinces from trees and from supermarkets and from the market and they all go pink. Maybe Corrie Red or pink? Both. Hmm. Both. And and uh, so, what am I doing wrong in the cooking well, process? Well, I think you might put need to put a beetroot in there and that makes sure oh. of it. <laughs> I suspect my grandmother used to have a little drop of cochineal, so perhaps nah, the whole concept nah, was completely. Nah. I, I just can't wrong. imagine why it's not working because it happens with apples and pears too if you cook them enough. They go pink, but like oh, a sort there's of fleshy not, pink, but. not a not a an ascaric of pink. Alice's no blush, know. no uh, no apricot, <laughs> no nothing, just dead brown. Oh God, I can't work it out. Um, so give us your recipe. Well, it's a it's which a re- is not for quinces. Um, the best thing about this recipe is for people to get it off the um, off your Facebook page because it goes on a bit. Um, effectively, it's chocolate mousse ice cream, and simply because we're running a bit short on time here, it's make a custard, melt the chocolate, whip your cream fold them all together and freeze them. So so you no, don't need an ice cream machine? You don't need an ice cream machine. And what vessel are you putting it in for the freezing? Uh, just some, a, a vessel, a vessel, that's very nice, that's been in the freezer so it's cold. So when, when you put the um, mix in there, it, it, uh, it's got to start with the cold and it, it forms a beautifully uh, luscious ice cream. So custard, chocolate, and whipped cream all folded together in, in, with purpose to create a fantastic chocolate mousse ice cream in which the uh, spoon just goes through like it's been in an ice cream machine. Um, it's, it's one of the great go-to recipes for when you're having guests around because it actually works with you, 
it works with any fruit. So if you've cooked your quinces to beautiful pink perfection, they can <laughs> sit on the side. If you're lucky. You can serve them with raspberries. You can serve them with strawberries, with cooked apples, with cooked pears, whatever you like. Um, it's just a fantastic recipe. So I'm not going to read it out. I'll just show you need 300 grams of dark chocolate, two cups of cream, 200 grams of sugar, six egg yolks, um, and that's it. Custard, whipped cream, and melted chocolate all okay. folded together. Okay, so we will have the actual method uh, on our Facebook page and our show notes as well. And, Jeff, I, the reason I asked about the particular vessel is you don't want to put anything that you're icing in anything tin because you get a t- that, you get that yeah. metally so tinny a, taste. A, a glass bowl. Yeah. Perfect. Fair enough. Okay, so we're on to six quick questions, but before we do, I just wanted to thank Vital Smart's globally proven crucial conversations. Hold tough conversations with your quinces, I say, and demand to know why they're not turning pink. Jeff, you're kicking it off because you're going to ask me a question. Um, you've put a lot of work into these questions, Corrie. Nineteen <laughs> Democrat presidential candidates descended on Iowa. This week, which candidates do you like the look of so far? Oh, well, Jeff, what an off-the-cuff question that is. (laughs) Elizabeth Warren, I have to say. Elizabeth Warren is looking good. Bernie Bernie Sanders is just behind Joe Biden, who is the outright leader in Iowa at the moment. But then following that pack closely is Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Pete Buttigieg, which is really interesting too. Well, when I was covering the trots, Buttigieg was butter gig. Oh. So isn't it funny how uh, translations of uh, culture have different forms of... But there was a horse called butter gig. No, one of the jockeys. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I say the names of horses and dish lickers, it's amazing. Jeff, uh, my question to you. Oh, God, this could go on for another hour. Which food machines do you have in your kitchen? And be quick. Well, I've got a Thermomix, uh, two Thermomixes. I've got a sous vide machine. I've got an outside barbecue called Everdure by Heston, which is is based on a coal. um, Heston Blumenthal. Heston, mm. Everdure by Heston, absolutely tremendous. Hibachi, which is a Japanese uh, um, coal-based, wood-based uh, barbecue. I've got a, a commercial coffee machine. I've got a Bialetti coffee maker. I've oh got a Nespresso God. coffee maker. I've got four pressure cookers. Is there any room on the bench for the canisters? <laughs> you sound like my wife. What is that doing on my bench again? Ice cream machine, a vacuum, uh, vacuum sealer. No, you have not. Of course, everyone needs to have a vacuum sealer. Oh, my Lord. And a scale that goes down to one gram. Oh, really? And no doubt there's plenty more. <laughs> that, that, I, I don't know. When are you having us for dinner, Jane oh, and I say? Oh, the recession dinner party revived. Yeah, yeah. Okay, question to me, please. Hurry up, come on. Uh, what's your favourite Duke of Edinburgh moment? Well, <laughs> <laughs> surely it's this Chinese, there's too many damn Chinese in China. <laughs> it's not so much moment, you're right, it's dollar quote. Uh, the reason I put this in, of course, is because Prince Philip turned 98 this week on the 10th of June. He was born in Corfu in 1921. Do you know Jeff and Jane? He has completed 22,219 solo engagements since 1952. Not all have gone to plan. So a couple of the um, zingers that I loved is when he asked Australian actress, actress Kate Blanchett to fix his DVD player because she worked, quote, unquote, in the film industry. <laughs> and then he said, and then he said uh, his comment about marriage, he said, when a man opens a car door for his wife, it's either a new car or a new wife. And then he asked a, a, an Indigenous, in Australia, an Indigenous uh, business leader, uh, do you still throw spears at each other? So <laughs> I'm just saying that. But, of course, his most famous quote that I love him for, he said, my job first, second and last is never to let the Queen down. There you go. You never get in front of the Queen. That's another part of his job. Um, slats would or touch like Donald Trump touched the Queen's mm. shoulder last week. Would you rather win golf's monthly medal or a greyhound racing like a Sandown Cup kind of thing. Oh, Corey, please. $500,000 for the Sandown Cup? 
or a toast in the bar for the monthly <laughs> medal, please. <laughs> Spare me. Everybody now knows the foundation of Jeff Slattery's Slattery Media exactly <laughs> Publishing right. Empire. Well, that's pretty true too. Uh, Curry, will you eat a Cornish pasty or clotted cream while in Cornwall? Absolutely or, not. Given it's uh, summer in Cornwall and you're going on a walk around Daphne de Maurier's state, will you stop to smell the Daphne's? <laughs> <laughs> it's 12 degrees in Penzance this weekend, oh, I know. Uh, I will do neither. I will not have a Cornish pasty because my father was the son of a baker and used to make the best Cornish pasties ever. So why would you go anywhere else? And clotted cream is so bad for your arteries. <laughs> oh, who cares? We're too old to worry yeah, about Yeah, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And you have a GLT. Final question. What is your good local tip? Uh, I suspect this is to do with cooking. It is. And... Uh, we've talked around cooking a bit today, but the thing is that every cook needs to have a probe thermometer when cooking poultry or meat so that the guesswork is eliminated immediately. The temperature that you are, that you want your uh, chicken or beef to cook to is perfectly um, graded and you can cook without any concern of, oh, my God, it's pink underneath the wing or it's overcooked or whatever. So, And you can be guaranteed also when you stick your thermometer in your chicken, it'll go beep. It will go <laughs> beep unless you've overcooked it when it'll also, you'll go beep. <laughs> so for poultry, 65 degrees for and for dark meat, 74 degrees. For red meat, 49 degrees Celsius is rare, 55 is medium rare, which most of us would prefer and 60 is medium, and 70 is... <laughs> how, how much are these little thermometers? Uh, they're not expensive. They get up to 150 for commercial versions, but probably 30 bucks. Good local tip. Um, I might have to get one a, of those. A must for every cook. I am really sick and tired of checking the chicken again and again and again. And every time you open the oven door, the temperature changes, so yeah, you, you've got issues. So. And, and the ones that have got a probe, they go through the oven door, above the oven door, sit on a magnet outside, and when the temperatures reach, it goes beep. Jeff, it has been lovely having you. We are so over time. If Nance was here, she'd be furious. <laughs> but look, uh, while the cat's away, the mice can play. Correct. It's been great having you on. Thank you very Pleasure, much. Pleasure, And thank you, Miss Jane, for your wonderful production skills, as always. Please, potties, tell your friends and family to subscribe to our podcast and do send us feedback and comments and tips through all the usual ways that don't shoot the messenger Facebook page. And, of course, you can leave a little note for us on our Instagram page, which is Don't Shoot Pod. And we tweet so you can join us on Don't Shoot Pod. And, of course, you can email us feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. There is a new episode of the book pod coming up in which... Jane and Rose Donahue and myself discuss our book of the month, The Erratic, so look out for that one. And Jeff, thanks again for joining us. We're going to have a little break for a couple of weeks. I'm not going to leave you in charge of this place. <laughs> There'll be too much beep. <laughs> uh, although you and Jane could have do a very nice cooking show, I feel, but I am off to meet Caro in Cornwall. We might send Miss Jane a couple of little clips of our uh, voices, perhaps having a grog in a local pub somewhere uh, and um, I look forward to seeing you all in a couple of weeks and Jeff, what do we say? Beep! Off! Hi, I'm Ann Summers. Hello, this is Laura Tingle. Hi, this is Leanne Moriarty. I'm Jen Harper. Hi, I'm Marcus Suzak. I'm David Maher. Join me on The Book Pod. I hope you can join Corey Perkin and I on The Book Pod. I would have been any one of the famous five. I just wanted to have those sorts of adventures because, believe me, nothing like that happened in suburban Caulfield. Always, no matter how abstract the issue, you have to find the narrative and you have to find characters and around those build the story. You know, some authors take a decade to write a book. I would miss the meeting the readers. And I think also people often completely underestimate. If something is easy to read, they think that means it's easy to write and it's absolutely not. It's such a skill. Subscribe to the book pod. Subscribe to the book pod. In your favourite podcast app. Wherever you listen to podcasts.